0: Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 17. So the late Dr. uh, Ralph Kuiper used to tell the story about this little eight-year-old girl who was attending his vacation Bible school at his church. Uh, so what happened was she managed to find her way into his study, and to his great surprise, she asked him this question, Mr. Kuiper, is it all right if I commit suicide? <laughs> the young pastor was startled, as you can imagine, but he knew never to give a quick answer to a child's question without first understanding the reason behind it. He asked, sweetheart, why would you ever want to commit suicide? She said, well, it's because of what I learned in Bible school this morning. <laughs> he was like, what did she learn in Bible school this morning? Um, but she said, we were taught that heaven is a wonderful place. No fear, no crying, no fighting, just to be with the Lord. Wouldn't that be wonderful, Mr. Kuiper? We were taught that when we died, we would immediately be with Jesus. Did I hear it right, Mr. Kuiper? He said, well, Mary, you heard right, but why would you ever want to commit suicide? She said, you've been to my house. You know my mommy and daddy. They don't know Jesus. They get drunk every night, which means we have to get ourselves up. We have to make our own breakfast. We have to go to school with dirty clothes. And the other children make fun of us. When we get home, we hear fighting. We hear yelling and other things that makes us so afraid. Wouldn't heaven be better? Wouldn't heaven be better? Right? Right? This little girl wasn't dealing with theory. This little girl was dealing with the reality that forces us to all question this from time to time. Why are we in this world anyway? Why are we here? What's the purpose of it all? If this world really is a place so marked by the fall and sin and cursed, why does God not just take us up to heaven upon our conversion? That's a deep question, right? And the kids, I think, did a pretty good job when I asked that. Um, With all there is to endure here in this world, the trials, the heartbreaks, the disappointments, the temptations, our withering bodies, the fragmented relationships, our deteriorating culture, the sin of other people, and the ever-increasing awareness of our own sins, what is it that's keeping us here and away from the next? Well, the scriptures provide us with many of those answers to that question, but the one that presses on on itself this morning is that Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and King, has given us a mission to accomplish. God has given us a mission. And the mission is in this world, and apart from that mission, living in this world makes no sense, right? So let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we come to the scripture. God, I pray that you forgive me of my sins, and I pray that you forgive us corporately of our sins. Give us pure hearts, give us clean minds this morning so we can come to your text, and uh, I pray that you, uh, you use your word to accomplish your mission, and I pray that if there's anything said in my accord or my own, own opinions, I pray that everybody in here forgets it and wipes it clear of their minds. But I pray that you drive down deep those principles that you have in your word, that we might live by them, and not just be hearers of the word, but also be doers of the word. Guard us by the power of your Holy Spirit from our own opinions and thoughts and uh, frailties and sin this morning, and I pray that your Holy Spirit uses your word to accomplish your purposes. And I thank you this morning for this gathering of believers, that we can celebrate the resurrected Lord. And we thank you so much for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So John 17, on the evening prior to his crucifixion, Jesus tells his men he is going away and they cannot accompany him. The reason? His father assigned Jesus a specific mission, that by predetermined design would require him to leave this world. But Jesus also had a mission for these men, both of which, his mission and and their mission has the same goal. The roles are two different and distinct roles, but the same goal. The role of Jesus? To leave this world via the cross, and all of its redemptive accomplishments to purchase the gift of salvation for all those who would believe in him. Praise the Lord for his role, the role of the disciples and all those who followed not to leave this world. Why? To proclaim to the world all of the saving benefits that Jesus Christ um, bought for us. In other words, his mission and call to us that Jesus gives in John 17 is to a worldly Christianity. (laughs) So be mindful of the context as we go into John 17. We have uh, in verses uh, one through six, Jesus praying for himself. Verses six through nineteen, Jesus prays for his eleven disciples. Now that Judas is gone, verses twenty through twenty-six, Jesus prays for all of those who would put their faith in him, including us. Mindful of the context, Jesus' public ministry had come to a close. His private ministry with his disciples is at hand as we get into John 17. So. What they do is they, uh, we just read John 13, they leave the Passover. They leave the upper room by moonlight going down to Gethsemane, down the hill to go over this Kidron brook, and before they pass over, John tells us that Jesus stops to pray in the text. Why does Jesus stop to pray? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but according to the historian Josephus, at this time the Kidron brook was red with blood. It was Passover week. Thousands and thousands had come to sacrifice lambs right there at the temple. And the sacrifices would be going on day and night, and the blood would be running down the backside of the hill. This would be the dump side of all that residual blood of all the thousands of sacrifices that would be going on. And so Josephus tells us that the brook was red with blood. More blood than water. It was it was it would have been a crazy sight, and so it says here that as Jesus is going, he stopped. And, and we, can, uh, we can read into this a little bit. It's not, uh, you don't have to uh, follow me, but I just see Jesus stopped in his tracks at this graphic vision of a violent death foreshadowed. And this foreshadowed his own violent death as the ultimate sacrificial lamb, right? What all these sacrifices were pointing towards. Jesus is the substance. At this, he drops to his knees to pray. And here's the quick outline. Verse 1 through 5, praying for himself. 6 through 19, prays for 11 disciples. 20 through 26, his intercession broadens. So let's look at John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Let's just, uh, let's just pause right here. Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking, do you know about Jesus? I'm not asking, do you have knowledge about Jesus? I'm not asking if you come to church every day. I'm not asking if you uh, do religious things. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? This is what salvation is, knowing the Lord. And all those who will be going to hell, we see in Matthew 25, depart from me, for I never knew you. Do you know Jesus? Do you have this relationship? Can you go a day without reading the Word? Can you go a day without being in prayer? Um, Personal question. Ask yourselves that this morning. If the answer is no, or maybe not, take some time right now. Um, Come before the Lord and just stop listening to me. Get yourselves right with the Lord and read His Word. Going on, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourselves, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is God, eternally existing. Um, Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Jesus is not praying for the world here. He's praying for those who God gave him out of the world. But of those whom you gave me, for they are yours. Verse 10, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have glorified in them. I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Isn't it a comfort knowing that your salvation is not kept by you? God is the one who keeps us in his name. Praise the Lord for that. If I could lose my salvation, I would, because I am a sinful dirtbag. Um, But praise the Lord that he has us in his hands if we are truly saved. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you, you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Why is Jesus speaking these things? So that we may have his joy. I love that, that word joy. And, I, and notice that he doesn't say happiness. Is there a difference between joy and happiness? What would you say the difference between joy and happiness are? Yes, you're allowed to talk. <laughs> I like it. Simple terms, yeah. And so, I think you guys can understand that. Let's see, you guys have probably gone through some days where you're super happy. You wake up, right side of the bed, wife's made breakfast for you something. something, could be your birthday, everything's going right. Um, green light's all the way to work, you get there and then uh, they say, oh, you can just take the day off and rest or something. You know, you, you all know what it feels like to be happy, to have one of those days where everything's going right for you. But imagine one of those days where everything's going good and all of a sudden you get that phone call, your dad died or someone ran over your dog. You guys know that feeling of just happiness being ripped from you, right? So you, uh, Todd said happiness was this feeling. Happiness doesn't last. Happiness can be taken from you in a second, right? But joy is resolute, this confidence that God has everything worked out and that it's, it's not up to us to control things. Joy is this, uh, this uh, internal internal truth and reality that God gives us, and something that Jesus is working within us. And we see, uh, I read this cool quote this week, uh, I think it was by Matt Chandler. he said, comfort is the God of this generation. And so, therefore, suffering is seen as a problem to be solved, and not a providence from God. And you know, God uses tough things to bring us to joy. We see that in James, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials and temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. God is using all these things in your life to produce steadfastness, or perseverance, or patience. And we're supposed to count that as joy, that God is working within us through these tough things, right? I'll get off my soapbox. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Notice that. It doesn't say your word is true. What does it say? Your word is truth. That means that there is no other standard of which to judge the truthfulness of the scripture by. This is the standard. God is the standard, right? We say God is good, right? It's an attribute of himself. And so, God is the standard of goodness. God is the standard of justness. God is the standard of righteousness. God is the standard of mercy. And so, we can't judge God by any other standard because he is the standard. And if we could judge God's goodness or truthfulness by another standard, that would mean that that would be God. Does that make sense? So God's word is the truth. Any idea or thought or, or way of doing things that you have in your head, always bring that to the scripture, and that would be subverted to the scripture. So we don't, we don't read the word. The word reads us. It is the truth that, sh- that we should be conforming ourselves to. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22. The glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as... We are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect in unity, that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you, gave, you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25, O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. So we see the great prayer that Jesus has prayed for us. And I'd like to dissect just the middle of this prayer just a little so we can really grasp the purpose that Christ is calling us here on the mission. Let's look back at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is leaving this world. His part of the mission has come to a close. Just like a runner who finishes his leg of the race and hands the baton on to the next runner. You guys all know what I'm talking about. Jesus is now handing the mission of bringing the gospel to his disciples. And the disciples would be handing that on to us as well. For this purpose, Jesus sanctifies himself. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be set apart, right? So Jesus sets himself apart for a specific mission. He then sets us apart for a specific purpose as well, to bring this message to the world, meaning that we have abdicated our role as Christians on God's mission when we are not living in pursuit of what he set us apart for. Does that make sense? If we're not on mission to the world, we shouldn't be able to call ourselves truly Christian or acting so. Um, If we're not doing the mission that he's given us. Meaning then, if we're to be distinctly Christian, We must be meaningfully worldly. In the world, not of the world. Much like any truth, you know, there's a ditch on each side that we want to be very careful not to slip into. The Christian life is lived on this razor's edge. It's lived on this slippery slope. Um, You can probably see the ditches played out in the global church scene. Thinking about the churches that you might have been to or been around or seen around, they always fall into two main ditches that we want to stay away from. Cultural gluttony or cultural anorexia. Inevitably, many of the church can fall into cultural gluttony. This means gorging on the culture in the name of many times trying to win the culture. Loving the world so much that they become indistinguishable from it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Not a new idea, but an old one. The church of compromise with the culture. We've seen this in all, in all ages. You see it on TV, internet, billboards, radio, no rules have it your way, just do it, YOLO. No standard of conformity, no, po- no uh, objective truth. You see this message just being bombarded on us. Postmodernism at and its fineness. And has the church withstood this cultural influence? Many times not. Um, in the church growth movement, the slogan has been, come to the church, have it your way. We'll conform to whatever you want us to be. Offering purpose with no commitment, offering relationship with no repentance, offering happiness without asking anything of you. Providing a sense of something other without having you stand before that other to give, give an account. Right? Of this God says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's in James 4.4. 4. And in John 2, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And many times, we, we want to stay away from this uh, extremely worldliness in Christianity. Sometimes we let the pendulum fly a little too far in dodging that. In reaction to this, the other ditch, which in my circle of people who love theology, people who love um, um, pursuing holy, the pursuit of holiness, love, uh, love the word, many times it's much more prevalent. Cultural anorexia. This radical and decided withdrawal from the world. Um, looking through rose-colored stained glass windows, trying to keep yourself so separated from the world that you become irrelevant. So, you know, in this mindset, they say, we're not going to let the world get at us. Instead, we isolate, we insulate, we boast about sheltering our children, and the church becomes an island of irrelevant piety. (laughs) Sometimes leading to this absolute disdain or fear of unbelievers instead of seeing them as a rescue mission. Have we fallen prey to either of these? In our own lives, this can happen many times without even realizing it. Um, You see the church of Ephesus. When you fight this war of worldliness so long, you go uh, in Revelation chapter 2 when he's talking about the the church of Ephesus. You see them fighting this war, and God God commends them on hating the things he hates, loving the things he loves, but uh, they were fighting this world. He He never tells them not to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Right, they were worldly people, but they hated the deeds so much they ended up hating the people. Right, um, it's easy to pick on the Joel Osteen's and stuff of the world, but you could not like the way that they do things. But if you if you end up going in that ditch so long that you end up just not liking Joel Osteen, or not liking people who do things different. Right, these people are a rescue mission for us, and we want to always love them. Um, so. You know, sometimes when we pause to realize in this ditch that if you don't have any meaningful relationship with a non-Christian person or can't remember the last time you even shared a meal with a person who wasn't saved, that wasn't a member of your family, you might want to rethink the way you're doing your life. Um, Many of my friends try their hardest to keep their kids sheltered away from worldliness. And, you know, I was homeschooled and went through all these deals and it ended up turning into this legalistic Christianity where you you forget what you were saved from. And you forget how to even deal with uh, unbelievers. But our goal as Christian parents should be to train our kids for engagement with the world, with a mind filled with the Scriptures and a heart aflamed with love of Jesus Christ and a courage that is endowed by the Spirit of the living God. Right? As parents, this is our job. But some of us have been told that since the world is going to hell in a handbasket, our job is just to hunker down and buy gold and move out to the countryside and separate ourselves from the world, right? Uh, Glenn Beck. I believe this is a great day to be a Christian. It truly is, right? We're living in a time where sin is destroying the world more than ever before. Just turn on the news. And we have all of the answers. All the answers are ours. Sin uh, Sin is bringing the world down and the truth is ours. The truth that can conquer any problem that the world can throw at us is ours to make known. It's a great day to be a Christian, right? I don't want my children growing up in a weak, defensive, scared posture. You've got to be kidding me. I want my kids to be growing up in an offensive posture. We have the gospel. We have the promise that God gave to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Amen? Jesus Christ has won. Verse uh, Verse 16. They are not of, this, of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what is the tool in which we are sanctified? The truth. The tool is the word of God. If there was a buzzword in today's Christian circles, um, I think that word would probably be uh, missional. Uh, whenever we go on these church planting retreats or whatever, I, I hear that word so much that I'm just like, oh. Goodness, do you even know what you're talking about? But everyone wants their, you know, everybody wants their life to count for something. Everybody wants to make a difference. Uh, and if you if you think of about millennials, my generation and younger than my generation, they're really busy. They do a lot of things, right? Um, give them, they don't know what they're protesting, but give them a sign and they'll protest something. They want to make a difference. They want to make a change, right? And uh, they want to help others. They want uh, so if you look at today's youth, they're really busy doing humanitarian work, social justice, work in the community, um, or going on mission trips. you know That's another big thing that, that people do to build shelters, lead VBSs, do work projects around the world, because uh, who doesn't want a bunch of untrained 14-year-olds coming to build you a house?) <laughs> uh, uh, but what what scares me is if you were to ask many of these missional Christians to explain, say, the Great Commission, uh, or to give a simple gospel presentation, you would hear crickets. Right? Um, it's uh, it's just empty-headedness. And so, um, they they want to do differences. They want to make uh, make a difference. They want to go on mission trips, but they can't explain to you. If I were to say, hey. I think I'm going to hell, how can I be saved? Many of them couldn't give you one answer. Um, And if you ask, why are you doing this? Many of the times it's just to help people, to make the world better, and uh, they don't connect this mission to the mission of Christ, right? Um, So these issues are concerning. And our text also speaks directly to these issues. You cannot be missional without being theological. Let that sink in. Um, I know where this quote comes from, and the sentiment, you know, I know it tries to convey, but, uh, you know, that, uh, that we're to live the gospel. You know, I know they're trying to say this, but this, this quote really grinds my gears. Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Uh, what are we supposed to do, mime, mime the gospel? Rose again. No, we are to use words. Our message is a message that needs to be declared, and so we need to know what we believe and why we believe, it. we need to be always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, right? This isn't just for pastors. This is for every single one of you who claim to be believers. Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? Um, and so, you know, I normally take that quote, and I say, uh, my version is, preach the gospel when necessary, rebuke anybody who says, if necessary, use words. Uh, so, we need 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourselves approved and unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means that if you're not studying the word, if you're not rightly dividing the word of the truth, in the reverse, that means you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, study. So, you can't be missional without being theological, but the other side of the spectrum, you cannot be theological without being missional. Verse 18. Verse 17, you can't be missional without being theological. Verse 18, you can't be theological without being missional. That's a lot of words, and now it's confusing. But do you understand this? If you truly understand what you believe and why you believe it, you have to live it. Orthodoxy, correct teaching, correct believing, leads to orthopraxy, right? Living, right? Behaving, right? Um, and if you truly understand that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners and understand his mission then you have to go. You have to say it. It's a byproduct of what you believe. So we are saved to serve. We are sent out to bring this grand gospel theology that our king has won and our king is coming back. And we're supposed to bring that to all creatures. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Uh, we'll end here. This is a great commission. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. I love that, God, that Jesus starts that. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. He has it all, right? So that means that we don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious for anything. But bring it to, to Christ in prayer and supplication, right? Right? Um, And the things that are out of your control are in His control, and so you shouldn't have to fret about it. You don't have to be anxious about it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Life has not been given to you as an experiment in self-indulgence. Bigger houses, faster cars, more shapely bodies, um, more exotic vacations. What else could we look for? Exhilarating experiences. Life has not been given to you as this experiment of self-indulgence. Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was a guy that you just couldn't touch, right? Um, Paul, stop preaching the gospel no, I, I can't stop preaching and declaring that which I know to be true. Well, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll kill you. Well, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Okay, then we won't kill you. We'll throw you in prison. Well, then I'll sing God's praises and convert all your guards. Uh, <laughs> you just couldn't touch this guy, right? We need to be like Paul. Live as Christ died again, but if I am to live in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul understands that his life isn't his own. His life is hid with Christ, and he belongs to the Lord. He is a servant to the Lord, and he blows his master's trumpet. And so he is here for others. His life is for others. It's not for himself. Fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. So he's torn between going to be with the Lord and staying here. But, verse 23, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. The instant you die, you will be with Christ. For that is much better. Verse 24, Yet to remain here in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convicted uh, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is saying that Apart from the work of gospel, life here makes no sense, right? So let's, uh, let's take some time just reflecting on John 17. How can we apply this to our lives? How can we be on this mission that Christ has called us to be? Who in my life am I pouring into? Who am I pushing towards holiness? Who am I pushing to grow in their relationship with the Lord? Um, Who do I need to submit and and put myself under to help me in my pursuit of relationship with the Lord? Where in my life am I hindering this work of the Holy Spirit within me? Um, Maybe even make lists of people that you can actively encourage. Let's dream as a church, you know. We're here for a purpose, we're here for a reason. You're here in Ocala for a purpose and a reason. You've got some great killer leaders in this church. Praise the Lord for the people you have here. And uh, I love uh, hearing what's going on. And uh, I am in your corner. I'm on your team. Jesus is praying not just for uh, his disciples. And he's not just praying for the church in Ocala, but he's praying for the global church. Right? We are all on the same team for the same mission. And that's cool. That's really cool. So if you guys ever need any help, or or if I ever need any help, I know where to come. And we can link arms in, the, in this mission with Christ. So... The truth is, we have all the answers. We have one. And so we're on a rescue mission. Just like a Super Bowl, um, if you guys watch that, or any type of game, this church, when we're meeting here, Sundays, this is the huddle. Out there is where we play the game. right? This is where we get our plays down. This is where we understand the deep, rich theology that the Scripture has for us. And then, when we are sent out, we go and bring that to the world. right? So it has to be a both-and. You have to be theological. You have to understand what this word says, what Christ has done for you. Then we can go out and bring that message to the world, right? So uh, praise the Lord for your pastors. You can't play the game without preparation time, or you're just wasting your time running around not knowing what you're doing on the field. But you can't, uh, it makes no sense to prepare when you're not going out and doing the work and playing the game, right? Right?